State Representative Joe Dahl just joined the Missouri House in January, and the Webster Groves Democrat has gotten a crash course in high-stakes legislation, especially around education policy. Dahl joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the first few weeks of her legislative service, so let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me on the show today, I'm very excited about this show because our guest today is the official state representative for Jason Rosenbaum, representing the beautiful 83rd District in the Missouri House. Our guest today is Joe Dahl. Thank you so much for joining me today, Representative Dahl. Not only am I excited to have you on because you are my state representative, but it fulfills a very important thing that we've talked about kind of in jest when I met you for the first time. After we do this show, I will be able to create the new theme music to the Politically Speaking podcast because I had said whoever won this race was going to be in the theme music because, I don't know, I like putting my state representative in the theme music. So congratulations on that accomplishment, which I'm sure is the only reason you ran for this seat, by the way. Clearly, absolutely. Now I'm excited to be here, and and I was excited to... um, to have that privilege. I was told of that not until after I had already won. So I can't say that inspired me to run, but I, I am excited about that. So what did inspire you to run for the state legislature? For, for our listeners, the 83rd district was held only by state former state representative Gina Mitten, who, by the way, was appointed to be an administrative law judge recently. Congratulations to former representative Mitten. So it was an open seat, um, for the first time since 2012, what prompted you to, to decide, I want to get involved in state legislative politics? Well, that's a great question. And it's kind of funny. Um, as you know, I ran for school board about, I guess, four or five years ago and had been active in the schools forever, kind of after the 2016 election, decided I was going to you know, step up and, and run for office. So I ran for school board. And really, that was that was the end of my aspirations. But as as I was running for school board, I repeatedly got asked, "So come on, what do you really want to do? Like, where where are you going with this?" And and I was I was genuinely thinking that this is it. I just want to be on the school board. And so fast forward a few years, and I get a call um, actually from this former superintendent who said, "Can I give Gina Mitten your phone number?" Because I didn't really I mean I knew who Gina was. I had conversations with Gina just as a constituent and a school board member but I'd never actually really, I didn't know Gina. Anyway, long story short, she said, would you consider running? And I said, maybe, and I went and met with her and um, spent some time just talking to some current reps and some former reps just to get an idea of, you know, what my life would look like. And as I took a step back and thought, you know, my youngest was graduating from high school. So my nest was about to be empty. And there were a lot of issues that I cared about. so I thought if, I, if I'm ever going to do it, now is the time. So I, I threw my name in the hat. 
So for our listeners, uh, Representative Dahl is also a member of the Webster Grove School Board. And this, I've said before, I love living in this area. This is one of the most bizarrely drawn districts in the state of Missouri. It includes parts of St. Louis City, Richmond Heights, where I happen to live right now, Brentwood, Maplewood, and also a part of Webster. Rock Hill. I don't want to forget Rock Hill. Rock Hill is a very important part of the 83rd district. Uh, You know, the interesting thing is, as a Webster Groves resident, you would on paper be at a disadvantage in this district just because it's very central, like it's a very Maplewood, Richmond Heights centralized district. And your opponent in the primary, I believe, lived in Maplewood, but you won pretty decisively. I think I have some theories about why you you won 60-40 in your primary, but why don't you just provide me with your your analysis of why you emerged victorious in this heavily Democratic seat where the primary is the election, basically? You know, that's a good question. And who knows if we'll ever really know what the what the magic was. I think, um, you know, my opponent and I were very similar on the issues. Um, I will say, I think I had the distinctive advantage that I am a physical therapist. And during COVID, I did not have a job because you know, hospitals or elective surgeries. Um, so I wasn't working, which gave me a lot of time to do nothing but make phone calls. Um, and I think, you know, my opponent was an attorney working full time. I don't think he had the time to commit as much as I did. I also have heard um, that the 83rd likes women in office. So I'm sure that that was on my side. And obviously getting Gina's endorsement towards the end, I think probably sealed the deal. So let's talk about your early impressions of legislative life. Uh, this is an interesting time to enter legislative politics because we still are in the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, session has gone along kind of in starts and stops because of the pandemic. Thankfully, as we're recording this on February 23rd, more people are getting the vaccines. The numbers in Missouri are going down. And hopefully this horrible pandemic will be a thing of the past. But what has it been like being in the Missouri House during this eventful and historic time, but also this perilous time for, for people's health? Right. I think it's, um, it is definitely an interesting time to be a freshman legislator. I think, um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do the freshman tour. So I think it definitely um, would have been nice to be able to bond not only with our fellow freshmen on the, on the other side of the aisle, but even with the other Democratic freshmen. I think, you know, we've gotten to know each other somewhat, but I think it's not the same as spending, you know, two weeks on a bus together. So I, I think that's that's made it a little bit challenging. And I, I will say that I think as a class, we have done, we've made a, a, a outright effort to get to know each other, especially those on the other side. We've developed a um, caucus, a, a nonpartisan caucus for the freshmen that meets um, just trying to come up with some common ground and try to end some of the extreme um, partisanship that's going on. Um, but but by the same token, we're also, you know, I, I am fortunate that I'm a healthcare provider, so I was able to get vaccinated early. But um, it's hard to sit in a chamber every day with um, people that refuse to wear masks. And you know that we're in the midst of a a pandemic where you know, 500,000 people have have died. So I think that that is hard to watch and try to understand. Um, I think that is, has been surprising to me. And um, I learned early on that guns are allowed in the Capitol, which is just mind boggling that you can come to the Capitol and bring your, bring your weapon. 
Well, that leads me to my next question. I mean, as, as I kind of established on the outset, the 83rd district is a very democratic district. And you're in a super minority legislature where Republicans can basically do anything they want without any Democratic input. But uh, Representative Mitten, I think, did a very good job of making herself impactful in this situation by usually working with Republicans, primarily on legal issues because she is an attorney, but also on other things where Republicans leaned on her expertise for various reasons. How do you plan on replicating that level of success in a really challenging environment for both you and your party? Well, I will say it is definitely frustrating at times to be the super minority. Um, that said, I do think Gina was someone that did have a lot of allies on, on the Republican side. And luck, fortunately for me, she kind of set me up for success in that way. I think she spoke highly of me to, the, to the, her friends on the other side. So that has definitely helped. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I don't agree with every Democrat and ever all the Republicans don't agree. I mean, so you just kind of have to find the common ground with people um, on the other side, just like you find with your own caucus members. I've been fortunate that I actually filed some of Gina's former um, bills and actually they've been filed by Shamed Dogan on the other side and Mary Elizabeth Coleman as well. So I've kind of naturally been able to um, develop some of those alliances. And uh, I think, you know, going forward, I tend to be someone that, that works well with and tries to get along with everybody. So I'm just trying to keep an open mind and, um, you know, not get, not get beat down by the, the constant um, partisanship that seems to play out in everything we do. Well, let's talk about a bill where there's going to be some disagreement, not only between Republicans and Democrats, but within the Democratic and Republican caucus. And that's this multifaceted education bill that, as we are recording this podcast, is being debated in the Missouri Senate. This has caused a lot of chatter in Jefferson City just because this would probably be pretty substantial expansion of charter schools. Um, and I think that there's a bunch of other things in this bill that I, I'm barely scratching the surface of. Um, you are a school board member, and we're going to be talking more on the second half of this show about some of your experience there. How, what is your mindset of, of, of this particular legislation, which may pass the Senate and maybe before the House within the next month or two? Right. Well, unfortunately, I think there are just a plethora of bad education bills out there this session. Um, and I think you're referring to the Senate Bill 55 that's currently being being debated. Um, and it's just, I, I cannot support charter schools in their current form. Um, we know that charter schools um, are not typical, and, and for the most part, have not shown to be successful. Students that, that go to attend charter schools do not perform better and typically or frequently perform worse than their, their peers in public schools. Um, we also know that they're, you know, if you, if you have a charter school, you're taking money away from your public schools to fund those charter schools, and they have no accountability, right? So um, anybody can can run a charter school, and you can run it basically however you want to run it um, with public money. And I, I'm someone that believes if you're using public money, then there should be some accountability, and taxpayers should be able to see what you're doing with that money. Um, and we know that a lot of those schools are, you know, out-of-state companies running the charters, and they're for profit. So they're making money off, off our students in Missouri. 
I tend to believe that if we're going to use public money, we should use it to make our public schools better and stronger rather than giving it to some outside outside company. So here's the thing I'm trying to understand about the charter school expansion part. And I'm reading a summary on my phone right here. If this were to pass, it says charter schools may be operated in any school district located within a charter county as well as any municipality with a population greater than 30,000. There are already charter schools in the city of St. Louis and I believe Kansas City. So I'm trying to figure out where would the where would the charter schools go? Because there's going to be no appetite for charter schools in Webster Groves or Maplewood Richmond Heights because the public school system is so renowned that people move to there in order to go there. Have you heard like what the objective is basically? I think Jefferson County, St. Charles, um, I think those are the areas that I've heard potentially. Um, maybe Springfield, I would guess, or it would be prime prime territory. Um, I mean, the, the other factor is that there's also a, a bill currently being discussed that would actually take the Missouri school system and make automatically make the, the bottom 10% perform the bottom performing 10% of public schools unaccredited. And the and then the additional 15% above that provisionally accredited. So once you make 10% of our schools unaccredited, they all become eligible to become charter schools. And then if 15% stay provisionally accredited after three years, they can add charter schools, which just seems in absolutely crazy because we you don't know that, you know, if you're if basically based on those numbers, you would have schools performing in the high 80s on their um, APR and they would become unaccredited. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. And it takes your test scores, which are currently 50% of that grade and makes them 70%. So your one-time test um, is going to determine 70% of your score, which is just unfair. And I don't understand why we would want to make 25% of Missouri schools unaccredited or provisionally unaccredited. It reflects badly on our state. It's hard for students. You're putting everybody in a bad position. I think that maybe one of the reasons why there may be a more concerted effort to get uh, charter schools expanded is people are upset of traditional public schools shutting down due to COVID, and they may see charter schools as a way to send their kid to in-person school. A topic, by the way, we're going to talk about in the second half of the show. What would you say to that argument? Because I think that that's going to be brought up a lot, especially by Republicans. You have no idea what a, what a charter school is going to do, right? Like, we don't know. They have no, no basis for that argument. Um, and I think there's plenty of private schools that have made the decision to stay open. There's some public schools that have made the decision to stay open. I don't think that, I think that you're solving a, a, an issue that you have or a problem that you have with a solution that doesn't fit. Does that make sense? Like charter schools are not the solution to that problem. Well, the other thing that I think people, especially Republicans are gonna say is that parents should have options about where they're gonna send their kids, especially in districts that are struggling. And I think that was the primary reason why the city of St. Louis has expanded charter schools so much. And it's been the main reason why they've had support not only among some Republicans, but also some members of your own party, like Francis Slay, the former mayor of St. Louis, was a huge proponent of charter schools and has expa- and they expanded wildly under his administration. 
uh, current mayor, Lida Krusen, you know, who, who is the mayor of a part of your district, has also been pretty amenable, too. So so what do you make of that argument? Because that's, you're also going to hear that a lot when, that, when it comes to the House. I think at the end of the day, charter schools are not inherently bad. But I think if you're going to have a charter school and you're going to give them public money, then they have, you have, they have to have some accountability. They should have a school board that's elected, whoever, whoever that is. And, and people should be able to see how their money is being spent. They should be able to know what they're being taught. They should have to follow some kind of, some standards. And I think, you know, the other factor is we know charter schools are selective about who they pick, right? So if you have a son or a daughter or a son that's got special needs, whatever, they're likely not going to be, they're not going to be accepted into the charter school because they're going to pick the students that fit their model and that are going to be easy to educate and likely inexpensive to educate. We know that special education is really expensive. Um, and we know that charter schools are for or typically profit profitable. And so I think that they're probably not going to put the money into um, resources for those students if they can avoid it when the students could easily go to a public school and get and get those resources there. It's too small of a number to make it worthwhile for a charter school to invest that kind of money, I would think. Some proponents of part charter schools have really fiercely pushed back against the idea that they, they can self-select their students. Uh, ha- have they pushed back to you when when you've made that argument and what what would be your response to that if they say well that's not true we will accept anybody that comes in basically well i think we know that it is true so i have not heard that pushback but i think that we know historically that that there is an application process and that they can you know select whoever they want to attend their school obviously they have to limit their enrollment some way um and so whatever their selection process is is determined by that charter which they're free to pick whoever they want or to make those, those um, determinations as they choose. It's not something, it's not like a school board or there's an overriding um, government to determine, you know, who should, who should or shouldn't be allowed to attend those schools. In Kansas City, there's a, there's a charter school that people really like that have done well, uh, that has done well rather, and, and it's a K through 12 situation. And I, what I have heard is that if they start with 100 kids in kindergarten and as time goes on, that class gets smaller just through whatever people move. They don't like it. They don't fill those, those, those spots, right? So by the time those kids graduate, you have a very select group of students that obviously are performing well and doing well in that school. Um, so, I mean, they can make that argument, but I don't think that that's what the history of charter schools has shown to be true. Where do you think this issue will end up when session is over. And I ask that because there has been an effort to expand charter schools for years, but it often is mired and those efforts often fail because there's a lot of rural Republicans that don't like charter schools and may fight it either in the Senate or they may vote against it in mass in the House. And this is an issue where your caucus could make the difference between whether this passes or fails. Do you have any, it's hard to predict anything in the legislature, so I'm asking you kind of a difficult question, but where do you think this issue ends up this year? I hope that it doesn't end up anywhere, that it dies off. But And I have heard from um, people working on the issue that it's going to be close. That the, I think it's anybody's guess at this point where it's going to end up. I do think, you know, for rural districts, charter schools are kind of a there are no, I mean, they're not, they're not a good thing for, for rural districts. And I don't know why they would support that. They, you know, I think 
that's kind of the same thing with open enrollment, which is another another issue on the on the books. If you're if you start open enrollment and you're in a rural district and the one next you performs better and everybody moves to that district and your school dies, you know that can be devastating to a rural community. So. Um, I do think that as these things tend to get rolled into one big bill on education reform, I'm hopeful that maybe, you know, there's enough people that want to protect their public schools, especially in the rural communities where we know those are the heart of the community, that it will, it won't go anywhere this year. But like you said, it comes back every year. So, and I know that um, Speaker Vescovo is very pro charter school would like to see it go somewhere. So we'll see. We shall see. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Joe Dahl. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Joe Dahl. She is a Democrat from Webster Grove. So I, one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the show is you are a member of a school board. And the issue du jour, so to speak, is whether or not to reopen schools amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a parent that's had to deal with this personally, I've had a lot of mixed emotions about whether schools should reopen or not. As, as many people know, my, my son has a developmental disability, so he has an IEP. So I wouldn't say my situation is the same as everybody else's. Um, but I do feel like the debate has been done in a very unnuanced way and has basically been pitted of let's open the schools under any circumstances versus let's shut them down and not open them up in any circumstances. And I want to hear your perspective about what it was like for a member of a school board to go through whether or not to reopen during COVID and sort of the challenges that have arisen. Absolutely. So I will say that, you know, kids were sent home last March, right? Told, you know, take stuff for a couple of weeks, we'll be back and never went back. And at that point I had a senior in high school. So um, I was living that, um, living through that situation. And I think as, as time progressed after those two weeks, we realized pretty quickly, like, we're not going back. Things are just too, the numbers that the COVID numbers were too high. We didn't really understand it. We were still trying to figure out. Um, obviously, none of us have ever lived through a pandemic. So I think that um, it was hard. There was a, definitely a, a learning curve. But I do also think last spring was a lot harder than this year in that all of a sudden we were thrust into virtual learning with essentially minimal time to prepare, right? So all of a sudden it was like, you were asking teachers to teach virtually, trying to make sure students had Wi-Fi. They had a, um, you know, a device to, that they could Zoom on to get to do virtual work, to get, to get um, assignments and books and everything out to students. Um, not to mention to make sure that the students that live with food insecurity had meals. Um, so I think it was a rough beginning and, and rough only in that it just took a minute to figure out how it was going to work and how it would work smoothly and how to keep students engaged. Um, but I think coming back this fall, it was much, much better because we spent the entire summer essentially um, and when I say we, it's not really me, it's, you know, our superintendent, all superintendents around St. Louis, I think coming together, working through it together, trying to figure out how to make it work, how to make it smoother, how to um, reach students that weren't ideal learners for virtual learning, right? Because we know some students do really well at virtual learning and some students just shut down. Um, so I think we had the summer to really, really fine tune that. 
And I think we came back strong this fall. I know it was a hard decision for our superintendent to decide um, what the fall was gonna look like. And although it seems like five years ago now, we went back virtually um, with the thought that within, you know, we would reassess after several weeks. Um, and we did. But the, the unique thing in Webster was people early on had to make the decision whether or not they were going to stay virtual for the whole semester or if they would be willing to come back. So back in August, when we were um, when they were going back to school, you had to commit, which became, which became interesting as time went on. Long story short, we went back in a hybrid method in October, I believe. Um, and I will be honest and say at that point, I thought this is a mistake. Like, I feel like our numbers are going to go up. Um, I think, you know, our classes are going to spend more time in quarantine than they spend in the building. And our superintendent was pretty adamant that he thought, you know, that he'd spent the time and done the research and that studies showed that schools, if you follow um, the distancing and you mask and you, you know, use hand sanitizer and you clean the rooms and you quarantine as, you know, following the CDC guidelines, that it really wasn't a big um, spreader. And that has proven to be true. And, and before you continue, just as a, as a way to compare another district that's in your district, Maplewood Richmond Heights had a similar decision to make around October. And I, I'll be very candid with you. The former superintendent did not provide a very detailed plan about what was going to happen. And I have said, even though I was not happy with the decision not to reopen, um, I probably would have voted against it too. Because I don't think that there was enough information about how they were going to do stuff. But I would have to imagine, because the COVID numbers went up in November and December, did you all have to shut shut down again anyways, basically? We really did not. So um, we had a portal on our website. And like I said, you were given the choice, right? So I would I can't remember what the numbers are, but a bit, pretty, a decent percentage. I think less than 50%, but maybe in like that 30 to 40% range. And don't quote me on that because, like I said, it does feel like a really long time ago now. But people chose they were going to stay virtual. And then the other um, percentage that came back, we came back in incrementally, right? So first we came, like K through two came back because we knew they were the least likely to spread. And then a couple of weeks after they got the hang of that, then they brought three through five back. And then six, seven, eight, and then finally the high school. And the high school still has not come back full time. So they, they do shifts. Um, because in order to maintain that distancing, we're a small district, we're a crowded district, and it's just too hard, especially at the high school level, to do lunch and keep people six feet apart. Um, so there have been definitely quarantine classrooms that have been quarantined, but we have not had to close. And like I said, I really, when that decision came out, I thought Maplewood Richmond Heights was making the right decision and that we were not. And we um, made the controversial decision of the school board probably back in October to trust our superintendent with the decision. So basically we said, you know, you're looking at the data, you're in the throes of it all. We're going to make it your decision and we're going to, we're going to trust what you decide. Um, and so he said, we're going back and they did. And, and I think you would, it would be hard to argue that it wasn't successful. I think it, it has, they've done really well. Um, and now that they've got virtual down, even when those classes um, are forced to quarantine, they can do it virtual. They can still do virtual instruction well, and students are still learning. But I think for mental health reasons and, and especially for students that have IEPs 
you know, students that don't live in a great situation that have food insecurity. It's really good for a lot of students to be back in the classroom. Well, this is one of the things that I found perplexing about this debate. First of all, I don't understand why this debate has gone national. Joe Biden does not have the power to reopen schools. And people like you have the power. Members of individual school boards have the power. But why do you think that this has become like nationalized when in reality, the president can't do anything? It's your responsibility. No, I, I do think for whatever reason, it has just become so politicized at this point. And you know, I think local control for school boards is, is what we typically rely on. And I think it should stay that way. Um, I think every district is different. Every community is different. Everyone's needs are different. And so to try and, and yeah, to try and have President Biden suggest that, you know, he knows what's best for, you know, the Webster Grove School District, or the Maple Richmond Heights District, or, you know, a district in rural Missouri is, I think, is, is naive. I think, you know, you have to look at your local situation and decide what's best for your district and what, what your school board thinks that the community wants. Well, okay. So I've heard a lot of like absolutes in this debate, like on the pro reopening side, you hear all these people definitively saying by closing schools, you're wrecking the mental health of kids. Uh, you're ruining their lives. You're going to ruin their learning. Uh, which by the way, I've heard counter arguments that there are some sets of students, especially uh, black and brown students who are, are enjoying virtual education for a lot of different socioeconomic reasons that would take an entire podcast to go through. Um, but then like you are hearing the other side say like they are worried that, you know, teachers are going to get COVID, that kids are going to get COVID, which I think is a really valid concern where I think that side is kind of losing a lot of steam though, is like, there's still some contingent of, of people saying, keep it virtual even after teachers are vaccinated. And by the way, in Missouri, right now that's not happening. That's a whole nother issue that maybe you can opine on. But I think that there's gonna be a lot less support for the idea of keeping schools closed once teachers get vaccinated. That's kind of my view of it, even though I certainly understand that there's not hard and fast science about whether the vaccine stopped transmission or whether there's a variant that may infect kids. So I, as I'm even just going through the summation of all the arguments, it, it you can't really look at this debate in the extremes that we're, we were that we were kind of caricaturing. It seems like it's a very complicated decision that you have to take a lot of things into consideration. Absolutely, and I do think um, we need to get teachers vaccinated. I think that they should be in the tier that we're currently in, not way down in tier where whatever wherever they are. You know, in our in our neighboring states in Illinois, teachers are being vaccinated, and I think if we're asking them to be in the classroom, they should be they should be a priority to get vaccinated because. You know, as we know, young, the younger you are, the healthier you are, um, the less likely you are to, even if you get COVID, to suffer the, the negative effects of it. So our teachers, I think we need to get vaccinated. I mean, obviously we have teachers that are 20 and we have teachers that are 65. So if you want to ask them to be back in the classroom, I think we need to give them the option to be vaccinated sooner rather than later. I do want to ask about the vaccines and teachers. Um, right now, as you mentioned, teachers are not on the current tier, and there has been a lot of push to include them, as you just mentioned. What the governor and his his staff have said is that they want to prioritize like 
people who are older over teachers who are generally younger. Um, and they want to get the, the people that are at risk of COVID more rather than that particular profession. How, how would you respond to that? I feel like we prioritized other jobs where you are in constant, where you are in contact with other people. And so if you have a teacher and you're putting him in a, a classroom of 30 children or 25 or whatever it is, I feel like they are in a, in a situation that warrants being vaccinated sooner rather than later. Um, but, you know, we had first responders in a, in a category lower than they should have been, in my opinion, as well. So I think, I don't know who or how our, the categories were determined in Missouri, but I feel like they, nest, they weren't necessarily reflective of who is at most at risk. And I, I mean, I definitely support getting vaccines to the older people and the people that are at risk, but we also know we haven't even done a very good job of that. Um, I think there's also some discussion that they're now looking at the Pfizer vaccine saying that, you know, one, one dose might actually protect you like 92%, um, which obviously would suddenly create a lot more doses out there. And hopefully we can just get people vaccinated faster so that we're all vaccinated and we can get this, the pandemic under control. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining me. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter, Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? I'm on Facebook and Twitter, just Joe Dahl. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. 